You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 121 by Rudolf Steiner, 11 lectures entitled The Mission of Folk Souls, translated by Joanna Collis. This is Lecture 7, given in Christiania, Oslo, June 12, 1910, in the evening. When you enter into the spirit of the lectures given here over the last few days, you will be able to accept the idea that beings and forces of the various hierarchies not only guide and direct events on our earth, and especially the course of human evolution, but also themselves undergo a kind of evolution or development. We have spoken of how beings of one hierarchy or another join together and, for example, as normal and abnormal spirits of form, intervene in the evolution of the races. We can now ask whether these spiritual beings themselves advance in their development. In our present period of evolution, it is possible for us to experience the drama of some of these beings advancing to the next higher stage in their development. Since the Atlantean catastrophe, since the beginning of the post-Atlantean evolution, we have been living in an age when certain archangels, certain beings from the hierarchy of the archangeloi, advanced to the rank of the archai, or time spirits. It is most interesting to observe this, for only when we see how the folk spirits, the folk souls, whom we call archangels, rise to a higher rank, do we gain a true understanding of what really goes on in the great world. This advance and rank is connected with the fact that after Atlantean times, a second kind of stream or migration of peoples led to the distribution of the various races. If we want to understand the period when the division of humanity into the five principal races of which we have already spoken took place, we must look far back into earlier Atlantean times. If we wish to ascertain when those human beings who became the black or Ethiopian race arrived at that specific location in Africa, when those peoples who became the Malayan race got to southern Asia, we must look back to early Atlantean times. Later on, other migrations were sent to follow those early ones. Once the earth had become basically populated by these peoples, others were dispatched to the parts already colonized. This was a second migration in later Atlantean times. The distribution of peoples to Europe, Africa, and America took place while Atlantis was gradually disintegrating. Later on, toward the end of Atlantis, and partly even during post-Atlantean times, the great stream of humanity pushed forward into Asia, even as far as the Indian territories. And all along the way, as has often been indicated, multitudes remained behind and became the populations of Asia, Africa, and Europe. We have then an earlier distribution and a subsequent push forward, a second wave. 
The purpose of that second wave was to send from the west toward the east certain peoples who were each guided by their own archangel. The archangels guiding those peoples were at varying stages of development. Some were closer to advancing to the rank of time spirit than others. We have to look far to the east to find the people whose archangel was the first to rise up to the rank of time spirit. This was the stream which merged with the original inhabitants of India and formed the ruling class there, laying the foundations of the first post-Atlantean civilization after their archangel had been promoted to the rank of time spirit, the first time spirit, or archai, of the post-Atlantean civilization. That time spirit then guided the sacred culture of ancient India and made it the leading culture of the first post-Atlantean period. Meanwhile, the other peoples of Asia, who were gradually developing, remained for a long time under the direction of archangels. This included the peoples of Europe, who stayed behind while the migration from west to east was taking place. They remained under the guidance of archangels, while the archangel of India had already risen to the rank of Archai and worked through intuition upon those great teachers of India, the holy Rishis. Through the mediation of this exalted and important spirit, the Rishis were able to fulfill their high mission in the manner already described. This time spirit worked on for a long time while the people lying to the north of ancient India were still under the guidance of their archangel. After the time spirit of India had fulfilled his mission, he was promoted to lead the entire evolution of post-Atlantean humanity. In the cultural age of ancient Persia, we then find the spirit of personality as the time spirit, that time spirit who worked through intuition upon the great Zarathustra, or Zoroaster, the original Zarathustra. This again is an example of how an archangel, a folk soul, rises to the rank of a time spirit. As I described just now, this is the very drama we are experiencing today in our own age, namely that through the missions they accomplish, archangels work their way up to becoming guiding and ruling time spirits. In the Egypto-Chaldean age, the archangel of the Egyptian people and the archangel of the Chaldean people both rose to a higher rank. During that age, the archangel of the Egyptian people rose to the rank of a leading time spirit and, as it were, took over the guidance and leadership that had formerly devolved upon the Chaldean archangel. The leader of the Egypto-Chaldean age thus became the third mighty guiding time spirit who had gradually advanced beyond the rank of the Egyptian archangel. But that was also the age when another important development took place, a development that ran parallel with the Egypto-Chaldean civilization and is related to the development to which we drew attention in this morning's lecture. As we saw, something special occurred in connection with the Semitic tribes, in that Yahweh selected the Semitic people to be his chosen people. Since he had chosen a particular race to be his special people, he needed at first, while this race was gradually developing, a kind of archangel 
to act as his vice-regent. In those distant days, therefore, the evolving Semitic people was guided by an archangel who was under the continuous inspiration of Yahweh, and afterward this archangel himself grew to be a time-spirit. Apart from the ordinary evolving time-spirits of the ancient Indian, ancient Persian, and ancient Chaldean peoples, there was thus another time-spirit who played a special part separately in that he worked within a single people. Here was a time-spirit who had the mission to act as a folk-spirit, so that here we have a time-spirit whom we have to describe as the folk-spirit of the Semitic people. He had a very special task. You will understand this if you bear in mind that this people was actually singled out from the normal course of evolution for special guidance. Special arrangements were made for the guidance of this people. Through these special arrangements, this people was entrusted with a mission that was of very particular importance and significance for the post-Atlantean epoch, a mission that was different from those of all other peoples. One can best understand this mission of the Semitic people by comparing it with the missions of the various other peoples of the post-Atlantean epoch. There were two spiritual streams in humanity. The one has its starting point in pluralism, or you could say in monadism. This sees a multiplicity of beings and forces as the source and origin of all existence. Wherever you turn, you will find that in one form or another the peoples of the post-Atlantean epoch assumed a plurality of aspects of the divine. The trinity of ancient India later came to be symbolized in Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. Or think of Germanic mythology, with its trinity of Odin, Hörnir, and Lodur, and so on. You will everywhere find a trinity, subdivided into a multiplicity. This characteristic is peculiar, not only to myths and teachings about the gods, but also to philosophies, where we meet it again in the form of monadology. This is the one stream, which, since it assumes a multiplicity of beings to be the starting point, can result in the greatest possible variety. In the post-Atlantean epoch, starting from India in the distant east and following a wide curve through Asia to Europe, this teaching of multiplicity has manifested in the most diverse ways and in a wide variety of forms. In our worldview, based on spiritual science, we find it expressed in the recognition of a number of widely differing beings and hierarchies. Opposite this doctrine of multiplicity, there had to exist a movement of synthesis strictly embodied in monism. The actual inspirers of the worship of a single divinity, those who gave the impulse toward monotheism and monism, are the Semitic peoples. It lies in their nature, or indeed, if you remember what was said this morning, in their very blood, that they represent the one God, the Monon. Human beings may look out into the great universe, but they would not make any great progress if they persisted in claiming that a oneness, a Monon, lay at the foundation of the world. Monism, or monotheism alone, can only represent an ultimate ideal. It could never lead to a real understanding of the world, 
to a comprehensive, concrete view of the world. But in post-Atlantean times, it was necessary for there to be a stream that represented monotheism, and the task of providing the ferment, the impulse for monotheism, was conferred on a single people. It was the Semitic people that was given this task. This is why you can observe how the monotheistic principle is represented particularly by this people, with what you might call a degree of conceptual severity, of conceptual inflexibility. And all other peoples, meanwhile, received from them the impulse to bring their variety of divine beings into some sort of unity too. The monotheistic impulse has always come from the Semitic people, while the others are more inclined to pluralism. It is extremely important to bear this in mind, and anyone who is concerned with the continued influence of the old Hebraic impulse will to this day find learned rabbis teaching the extremes of monotheism. The task of this particular people is to propagate the doctrine that a single ultimate principle underlies the world. Thus you could say, the task of all the other nations, peoples, and time spirits was analytic, to represent the single ultimate principle as being articulated in two different beings. In India, for example, the ultimate abstraction of the one God underlying all things became divided into a threefoldness, just as the one God of Christianity is divided into the three persons of the Trinity. Those other nations have the task of analyzing the ultimate foundation of the world, showing the plentiful content to be found in the several parts, and filling these with rich material for the imagination, which can lovingly encompass all the many phenomena. The Semitic people, on the other hand, has the task of eschewing pluralism and uniting all variety in a unified synthesis. Thus the power of speculation, the power of synthetic thought, expressed in Kabbalism, is unsurpassed precisely because it stems from this impulse. Everything that could possibly be distilled from the unitary principle by the synthesizing activity of the I, capital, has been distilled by the Semitic spirit in the course of thousands of years. This is the great polarity between pluralism and monism, and it is what gives meaning to the Semitic impulse in the world. Monism is not possible without pluralism, and pluralism is not possible without monism. We must recognize that both are necessary. The objective language spoken by the facts often leads to conclusions quite different from those motivated by the sympathies or antipathies that come into play in one place or another. Therefore, we must reach a clear understanding of the individual folk spirits. Whereas the leaders of the several peoples in Asia and Africa had long since risen to the rank of time spirits or spirits of personality, and indeed some of them were expecting to metamorphose from being time spirits to the next higher rank, to spirits of form, just as, for example, the time spirit who was active in ancient India had already risen, in certain respects, to the rank of the spirits of form, the several peoples of Europe were for a long time still under the direction 
of their individual archangels. It was not until the fourth post-Atlantean epoch that the archangel of ancient Greece rose above the various peoples of Europe who were still under the guidance of their archangels. He advanced to a leading position by becoming the dominant time spirit of the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. Thus the archangel of ancient Greece rose to the rank of the Archai, one of the spirits of personality. What this archangel of Greece had been preparing himself for came into play for the world in Asia, Africa, and Europe, namely that the people of Greece would become their central focus once he had become the time spirit. Whilst the archangel of the Greeks had developed into an archai being, the time spirit of the Egyptians and also the time spirit of the Persians had advanced to become a kind of spirit of form. We are now about to touch on something exceptionally interesting in the course of post-Atlantean evolution. As a consequence of his earlier development, the Greek archangel was able to pass relatively quickly through everything he now had to develop in order to become especially competent in his position as the time spirit. Something of the greatest significance, therefore, occurred in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. As we know, the event occurred at that time in which humanity took up the Christ impulse. The Christ impulse was taken in. The mystery of Golgotha took place. That impulse was destined in the course of the following centuries and millennia to spread gradually across the whole earth. For this to happen, not only did the event itself have to take place, but there also had to be certain guiding and leading beings from among the hierarchies. Something highly remarkable and interesting now occurred. At a definite moment in time, which coincided approximately with the descent of the Christ impulse to the earth, the time spirit of the Greeks renounced for our present age the possibility of rising into the region of the spirits of form, and so became the guiding time spirit who then worked on through successive ages. He became the representative guiding spirit of exoteric Christianity. The Archai being, the guiding spirit of the Greeks, became the vanguard of the Christ impulse. In consequence, ancient Greece declined rapidly at the time of the expansion of Christianity because it had surrendered its leading time spirit in order that he might become the leader of exoteric Christianity. The time spirit of ancient Greece became the missionary, the inspirer, or rather the intuiting spirit of expanding exoteric Christianity. Here we have a concrete example of an act of renunciation, such as we have already mentioned. Because the Greek time spirit had fulfilled his mission in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch so admirably, he could now advance in evolution toward a higher region. But he renounced this possibility, and by doing so became the guiding spirit of expanding exoteric Christianity. And in that capacity, he continued to work across the various peoples. A similar act of renunciation took place on another occasion, and this second instance is once again of particular interest to students of spiritual science. 
while in Asia, including Egypt and Greece, the several archangels were advancing to the rank of time spirits. There existed in Europe separate peoples and tribes who were guided by their various archangels. Thus, while the corresponding archangels, who had been sent in ancient times from the west toward the east, had advanced to the rank of time spirits, there still existed in Europe an archangel who worked in the Germanic and especially in the Celtic peoples, in those peoples who at the time of the founding of Christianity were still spread over a large area of Western Europe, extending into today's Hungary, southern Germany, and Alpine countries. These peoples had the Celtic folk spirit as their archangel. The peoples of the Celtic folk spirit also inhabited an area extending far into the northeast of Europe. They were guided by an important archangel, who soon after the Christian impulse had been bestowed on humanity had renounced the possibility of becoming an archai being, a spirit of personality, and elected to remain at the archangel stage and to subordinate himself in future to the different time spirits who would arise in Europe. Hence the Celtic peoples also declined as a united people because their archangel had made a special act of renunciation and had taken on a special mission. This is a characteristic example of how in such a case an act of renunciation helps to initiate particular missions. What then became of the archangel of the Celtic peoples after he had renounced the possibility of becoming a spirit of personality? He became the inspiring spirit of esoteric Christianity. All the underlying teachings and impulses of esoteric Christianity, especially of the real true esoteric Christianity, have their source in his inspirations. The hidden sanctuary for those who were being initiated into these secrets was situated in Western Europe, and there the spiritual impulse was imparted by this guiding spirit who had originally undergone an important training as the archangel of the Celtic people had renounced his promotion to a higher rank and had undertaken another mission, that of becoming the inspirer of esoteric Christianity, which was destined to live on further in the secrets of the Holy Grail in Rosicrucianism. Here you have an example of an act of renunciation, a sacrifice on the part of one of these beings of the hierarchies. At the same time, it offers a concrete example illustrating the significance of such a sacrifice. Although this archangel could have advanced to the rank of an archai being, he remained at the archangel stage and in consequence was able to guide the important stream of esoteric Christianity that is destined to be furthered through the various time-spirits. No matter how these time-spirits may work, this esoteric Christianity will remain a living source for everything that can change and metamorphose under the influence of those various time-spirits. Here, then, is another example illustrating an act of renunciation. While we are otherwise witnessing 
the mighty spectacle of folk spirits advancing to the rank of time spirits, especially in our age. Now in Europe we have the various Germanic peoples. Having first been guided by a single archangel being, they were then called upon to come gradually under the guidance of a variety of archangels and form a variety of folk identities. Because these things tend to arouse passionate reactions and jealousies, it is very difficult to speak about them impartially. Consequently, certain mysteries pertaining to this evolution can only be touched upon lightly. From among those archangels, the Archai being emerged, who became the leading time spirit of our fifth post-Atlantean epoch. He emerged after one of the archangels of the Germanic peoples had for a long time been undergoing a certain training. The time spirit, who was the folk spirit of the Greco-Roman age, became, as you know, that time spirit who was later concerned with the expansion of exoteric Christianity. Later on, Roman history was also guided by a kind of time spirit who had risen from the rank of archangel of the ancient Romans and had joined forces with the Christian time spirit in order to coordinate their activities. These two were the teachers of that archangel who guided the Germanic peoples, who had been one of their leading archangels, and who had then risen to become the time spirit of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. Much remained to be done. It was essential that the different folk elements in Europe should be strongly individualized and intermingled. This was only possible because while the archangels in Asia and Africa had long since advanced to the rank of time spirits, in Europe the leadership remained with them so that the peoples were guided by their folk souls. Being indifferent to the time spirits, they continued to be wholly given over to the impulses of the folk spirits. At the time when the Christian impulse began to pervade humanity, there was in Europe a confusion of activity by individual folk spirits, filled with a sense of individual liberty, so that each went his own way, making it difficult for a leading time spirit of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural age to come into being, who could guide the several folk spirits. To create, let us say, that people which inhabits the French region, there had to be a mixture of Latin, Celtic, and Frankish folk elements. This intermingling led to the specific nature of that people's guidance, so that it passed from the individual leading archangels who had different tasks to other beings. Parenthesis, we have already indicated what mission the guiding archangel of the Celts had been given, and in the same way we could indicate the missions of the archangels of the other peoples. Close parenthesis. Thus, still other archangels took on leadership among the peoples who had arisen through such intermingling of the different elements. Over a long period of time and even into the Middle Ages, leadership in Central and Northern Europe was chiefly in the hands of the archangels who only gradually came to be influenced by that unifying time spirit who was the vanguard of the Christ impulse. Many of the folk spirits in Europe became the servants of the Christian time spirit. The European archangels placed themselves in the service of this shared Christian time spirit, 
yet the several peoples were barely able to allow any of the archangels to advance to the rank of a time spirit. Starting from about the 12th century, it was not until the 16th and 17th centuries that the first steps were undertaken toward the development of the guiding time spirit of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, who still directs us today. He belongs among the great leading time spirits, equally with those who were the great leading time spirits during the Egypto-Chaldean Babylonian, the ancient Persian, and the Indian ages. But this time spirit of our fifth post-Atlantean cultural age worked in a very unique manner. In effect, he had to enter into a kind of compromise with one of the former time spirits who were active before the birth of the Christian impulse, namely with the time spirit of ancient Egypt, who, as we have heard, had risen in a certain respect to the rank of a spirit of form. Thus our present fifth post-Atlantean epoch is really governed by a time spirit who in a certain way is very much subject to the influence and impulses of the time spirit of ancient Egypt, who is, so to speak, in the very early stages of being a spirit of form. This is the source of the many cleavages and divisions of our time. Our time spirit in the fifth post-Atlantean age is striving to raise himself to spiritual heights and bring the fourth post-Atlantean cultural age up to a higher stage. But there is something here that is like a materialistic tendency, an inclination toward materialism. Depending on the degree to which the various archangels, the various folk souls, are inclined toward this materialistic tendency, there arises, under the guidance of this time spirit of the fifth post-Atlantean age, peoples that are materialistic to a greater or lesser degree, which in turn gives the time spirit a nuanced tendency toward materialism. By contrast, idealistic peoples give the time spirit a nuanced tendency toward idealism. From the 12th to the 16th century, something gradually developed, working in a certain respect parallel with the Christian time spirit, who is the Greek time spirit that continues to be active, so that actually, in a remarkable manner, the Christian time spirit, united with the actual time spirit of the fifth post-Atlantean age, is flowing into our culture. And here again impulses flow in from ancient Egypt whose time spirit has advanced to a specific rank among the spirits of form. It is precisely because a trifolium of this kind is at work in the whole culture of our time that it has been possible for folk souls and cultural streams of widely differing nuances to emerge in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. It became possible for the time spirit to manifest the greatest diversity. The archangels who took their orders from the time spirit worked in many and varied ways. Those of you who live here in the north will be interested in something we will consider more closely in our next lectures. The following question will be of particular interest to you. What was the activity of that archangel who was once upon a time sent to this region with the Nordic peoples, the Scandinavian peoples, and from whom the various archangels of Europe, especially those of Western, Central, and Northern Europe, 
received their inspirations. In the eyes of the world, it would appear foolish to speak of that point in the continent of Europe which at one time radiated the most powerful spiritual impulses, the center that was the seat of exalted spirits before the Celtic folk spirit as the Celtic archangel had established a new center in the high castle of the Grail. The archangel of the northern peoples first received his mission from that place which in ancient times had been the spiritual center of Europe. For the outside world it must seem foolish, as I said, to indicate as the central source of inspiration for the various Germanic tribes that district which now lies across central Europe, which indeed actually hovers above the earth there. If you were to describe an arc to include the towns of Detmold and Paderborn, you would delimit the region whence the most exalted spirits were sent on their several missions to northern and western Europe. It is because the great center of spiritual inspiration was located there that legend later told of Asgard having been situated at this place on the earth. There in the remote past lay the great center of inspiration. In later years its spiritual mission was taken over by the center of the Holy Grail. The peoples of Scandinavia, with their first archangel, were at that time endowed with quite varying potentialities, which now are reflected only in the peculiar configuration of Nordic mythology. If in the esoteric sense we compare Nordic mythology with other mythologies that have prevailed across the earth, we can realize that this mythology depicts the original disposition of the archangel who was sent to the north with his mission, the original disposition which has retained its original form, like that belonging to a child whose particular talents, latent gifts, and so on, remain at a childlike stage. The archangel who was sent to Scandinavia embodied those potentialities, which were later expressed in the peculiar configuration of Nordic mythology. Here lies the great importance of Nordic mythology for an understanding of the real inner being of the Scandinavian folk soul. Herein, too, lies the great significance that the understanding of this mythology has for the further development of this archangel, who certainly has the potential to rise to the rank of an archai being. But much must be achieved if this is to happen. He must develop in a specific way those native potentialities, which in certain respects have become overshadowed by the dawning shadowy influence of the time-spirit who has placed himself in the vanguard of exoteric Christianity. Although Germanic Nordic mythology and Greek mythology are in many respects curiously alike, it has to be said that there is no other mythology which, in its own peculiar composition and characteristic development, gives a deeper or clearer picture of cosmic evolution than does this Nordic mythology. So that this picture may serve as a preliminary sketch for the spiritual scientific view of world evolution. From the way in which it was developed out of the native powers of the archangel, Germanic mythology is in its pictures closely akin to the conception of the world that will gradually emerge for humanity as the spiritual scientific worldview. The crux of the matter will lie in how those original native potentialities 
of an archangel can develop after he has been educated by the Christian time spirit. These potentialities will be able to become an important part in the guiding time spirit. When, at a later stage, in the evolution of a people, this people has learned how to develop and perfect the potentialities with which it was endowed at an earlier age. We have thus merely hinted at an important matter, an important evolution of one European archangel. We have indicated, so to speak, what potential he has for developing into a time spirit. We will pause here for the moment. We will then continue our investigations by endeavoring to undertake an esoteric study of mythology through analyzing the configuration of the folk soul. This will bring us to the special chapter devoted to a description of the very interesting characteristics of Germanic mythology and, in particular, of Nordic mythology. The end of Lecture 7